You're listening to Novara Media's Decade Project created with support from the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation. As part of the future of work strand, we wondered about the future of one of the most fundamental forms of work, work which feeds us. first we should uh, introduce ourselves. I am, as ever, James Butler, and I am joined by... I'm Sophie Henry. Uh, who has been doing a lot of the reporting work that you're going to hear uh, through this show. And I'm also joined by... Craig Gent. Who has been uh, effectively initiating and overseeing this entire thing. So we've got the field operative the panopticon and uh, the office nerd, which I think is me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, what, have you got any, like, jazz apples? What are those apples over there? These ones here? Yeah. Ravens here, Garlas. Don't have jazz, I'm um, Do you have any, like, coxes? Um, not yet. Too early. Rob- Robins, which are the first. Do you think this shop will still be here in ten years? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't think people think it's a sustainable business model, but actually it totally is. Okay. It's it's fine. Why is that? People love the format, and it's like... The format, yeah. Yeah, we never... There's niches that we can fill for, like, people, personal comfort, if you want to put it like that. Oh, my my boss says... What did he say? He's got good, actually, he's got a good phrase. But anyway, basically, people, they have to eat. So they're always going to buy food. So we're never going to stop. And I make him quite right to be true. So, might be different the way people are going to buy, but the main item they're going to still be purchased. It's always going to be here. Whatever, you know, whatever happens, people are always going to be, they're going to need to be fed, whether it is whether in 10, 15, 20 years the dairy industry is null and void, people are still going to need to eat something. Um, so, yeah, I, yeah, I do. I'm not worried. I wouldn't be worried about my job at all. That's, you know, it wouldn't ever cross my mind. There'll always be a business because it's the fruit industry, so people always eat. I think this has given them a shot in the arm with the with this coronavirus thing. It made people go back to basics, and they've gone back to buying from their local um, retailers. If the price was to plummet, I guess that would have a huge effect on dairy farmers. But we like to think we're quite resilient and would, you know, we're low input, low output, so we might be able to manage that quite easily. Um, I parallel it with like an off license, so it's like, oh well, all the off licenses will go because it's cheaper to buy booze. But it's like, and I'm sure most people prefer going to like an offie where the guy knows them. Yeah. He's not going to ask them for their idea every time when they're like forty or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they've got that personal interaction. We went out and talked to people working on farms, working in markets and working in grocers. I think one thing I found interesting when when people were asked about how they thought their work would change in the next 10 years is people generally said, oh, no, no, we'll still be here. And I think that's because people think, well, people still need to eat. Ergo, we'll still be here. But people do recognize that there has been a lot of change in the past and very, very few people said their work hadn't changed in the last 10 years. But 
but then at the same time, the feeling that, that we'll still be here. And I, I guess it's not quite clear whether people think we'll still be here because people need to eat or we'll still be here because we're determined to kind of hang on. Um, and we've made it this far and we will continue to do so. I guess, I mean, everything's always changing. I mean, I was told that um, when, when we used to uh, work here, a good 10 years ago, it was a lot more busier, a lot earlier. So, you know, we come in and every time we come in, it used to be busy from, from early morning to from about 7 a.m. all the way till about 6, 7 p.m. So a good 12 hours, it was busy all the time. But now it's, it's slowed a lot down, obviously because of the stores. So I'm guessing it's, as time goes on, a lot more stores like Tesco's, Asda, Sainsbury's, and, um, they build more of those and more, uh, obviously, uh, opposition. <laughs> um, it might it might slow down, yeah. It's getting, it's getting harder and harder, and, uh, and I think it's, it's I think ultimately they it, it, it's convenience and people people want convenience. There's not enough hours in the day now, and people buy off of the uh, supermarkets, get home deliveries. That's that's the way they go now. So this shop's been here for like hundred years, I think. Wow, really? So, I guess it's like, I guess I feel like it's important that it keeps going. Yeah. But I suppose there comes a point where you sort of think, well, is it, is it that important that it keeps going? I mean, okay. It's what I mean, I mean, you're stuck do you think it is? You're stuck with super, well, I guess otherwise you're stuck with supermarkets. Aren't you? Okay. Around here you are, if it's not, you're in you know, Sainsbury's or nothing really, if you're around here. I enjoy it, but it's, the, it's long hours, six days a week, ten hours a day, it's, it's, it's a long, it's a, it's a lot of work. It's, you have to make sacrifices, it's, 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 uh, family life sort of takes second, you know, you don't get a lot of social life when you're working six days a week and starting at midnight. What, have been, what are some of the harder parts of the job that you find more difficult? Pulling the barrels around in the night time, they're getting really heavy. Sometimes they can be really, really heavy, but they don't bother me. I really enjoy it. Um, I, you sort of have to enjoy it if you're gonna if you're gonna get out of bed at five o'clock in the morning. You do have to enjoy what you're doing, really. I think. And if you're gonna go out again in the night to do it, um, you do have to enjoy it. It is difficult. It's not easy. Night job is difficult. But I'm doing it from line time. But I have to do. It, you know. Now I can see a lot of people. There's no job. Nothing. There's jobless. So I have to do. It. This is my job, and I have to do. It. And now I'm supporting my family back home. So I support here my family as well, so I have to do it. It was clear that, that the work is really hard and the impact on your life is, is really serious, um, but there definitely was a reluctance to kind of go into that. And yeah, instead, kind of a lot of pride. Well, it is what it is. You've got to do what you've got to do feeling around it but I think what came through most strongly was a kind of a kind of pride and a sense of uh, duty in providing that we are providers for people surviving and doing the other work of society. The only thing that worries me uh, as I said as far as small company probably you can't find the people they are willing to work uh, that, that's my only concern is about Who's going to be able to, who's going to be willing to work in this kind of environment and kind of business in the future? Because, I don't know, I think young people are a bit lazier nowadays, so we'll see how it's going to go. Some farmers like to think, oh right, well it's still light, so I may as well go out and be working, and work all night, and work and work all day, work all night, work all day, work all night. I don't really know why, I guess 
I can see why people do do it. But then I do know people that are just almost working for the sake of working. This job is stressful. It's not a job. Everyone then after in the morning you have to go and deliver, find the stuff. It's a bit stressful. But we just keep look after each other. So I'm starting in the market about half ten in the night. And I'm done about eight, half eight in the morning. But then I start again from the other side. So I'm, basically I'm never asleep. <laughs> How many hours do you sleep tonight? I reckon about three, four a day. Is that hard? Uh, it will be eventually. <laughs> At the moment I'm young so I can push. Um, do you like the work? Yeah, I do. Uh, don't ask me why. Because <laughs> I don't know. But it's something that you either got it or you don't have it, I think. It's a okay. crazy, crazy word, William. What would you change if you could? Uh, we're working night time. That's crazy. No, but as I said, you get used to it, kind of. But if we could, if we could run this business daytime, it would be lovely, like a normal life. Just after I finished that chat with that wholesale trader, um, he wanted to add. Uh, he said, "Don't get me wrong, the money's really good. That's you know part of the reason why I'm staying in the in the job. Um, but you are sacrificing your life, and my girlfriend isn't happy." There's this sense that somehow the work itself, there's a sort of a stoicism to it. You've either got it or you haven't. The, the herdsman who said, work all day, work all night, work all day, work all night. There's a question of character or a, a perception that what people perhaps don't understand about the work of producing food is it's not just about the physical processes involved, but it's about the, the character of the people who, who do it, which perhaps reinforces a kind of a, an us and them sort of mentality that you see sort of come out in comments about you know people being too lazy to do the work or whatever there's something interesting in that like about sort of dignity of labor right which is a concept which is not without its problems <laughs> obviously in some ways um but it but it is also something that it seems to me can and perhaps should be recovered you know in some ways like you know i'd, I'd far rather be operating with a shared system of value that said that kind of work is important as opposed to, you know, I don't know, working in insurance or something. My name is Julius Zamaquari. I, I did the, the, the loader job. So I was a loader and, and a cafe server. So I did about uh, eight months in total of, of what we call an anthropology participant observation, which means you immerse into this kind of field and you live the lives of the people that you're studying with. When I entered the, the market to do my research at the beginning of 2015, I weighed 83.2 kilos and I've lost about 14 kilos uh, in the process of few months and it continued to go down at the same time with my night uh, intensive uh, awakeness and alertness uh, at the expense of my sleep so being a person I used to work, uh, sleep in the night as everybody else or most of us uh, eight hours seven eight hours I, I came down to four or five hours on average you know so you're not supposed to show signs of physical tiredness never mind psychological and emotional it really got to me after a few months my I lost that all that weight um, and I, I fell ill 
well, ill is a bit too much. I, I was sick and then I went to the GP. Of course, I did the right thing. I went to, to the GP and the GP issued me a seven-day uh, sick notice. Went back to the manager, looked at it, they thrown it on the desk, didn't say a word, didn't say get out, didn't say stay, didn't say you can be away for seven days as the, as the sickness note shows. And, and I knew that that was a subtle way of saying, if you're not coming back to work, the night after, then you're out because that's where you all are, as you used to say. You're all expendable. And I have 10, 11 people, 12, whatever number he could come up with and say they're waiting at the door to take your place. But when I showed my colleagues that sick note, they started to, to joke. You know, they said, why? You got AIDS or something? What do you mean? So you made out on the computer. What do you mean you sick note? Where, where are you here? You know, I mean, those people haven't seen a sick note. And they were working years and, 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 you know, they just continue to do that because if they don't, they are threatened that they will lose their jobs. So they have to turn up. So it's intensive work. It's, it's, it's extremely um, uh, difficult uh, certain periods. Uh, it's it's, it's uh, six nights a week, which means you don't have much time to, to recover. And, and so many people, in fact, some of my colleagues, pointed at someone and see, look, this guy worked here for about 14 years. You know, he's, he's, uh, he's like a walking ghost. It's an existential precariousness. It's not this, this precarity often used to uh, define uh, uncertain uh, job offer or job situation and, and unstable income. It's about existentially being... Uh, living in a, in a precarious way in which you don't really see the contributions you make into a 24-7 society because you don't really exist. People don't hardly think of night workers and, and the fact that business lunches and, and, and you know, fresh groceries in the morning are, are basically the result of the work of people spending their lives uh, do, doing that kind of job. So I only became aware after speaking to Julius Cesar, the anthropologist, that the work is really fragmented and really hierarchical in use pitfalls market, as you would assume, but like it wasn't obvious going in there um, who did what and maybe who had more power. Some of the lowest paid workers arrived to set up the stalls at around 11 p.m. or something and then stay until the morning, like nine or something. But the traders arrive more like midnight, I think, um, 11 midnight, and just get going on their stalls. Yeah, but it does seem like it would be up to a kind of 12-hour shift for a lot of people there, six days a week. Yeah, even for the highest-paid workers there, that's the hours they have to put in. I mean, it's quite... You can really hear it in, in the tape. They're all kind of very acutely aware of their hours I think someone was saying about, about sacrificing his life essentially for for this kind of work and I, you know it's it's really audible everyone was quite dismissive maybe when I um expressed like a desire to like understand more about what it might be like to work those hours and I think maybe that's just from a psychological perspective you can't really go there too much otherwise mm. you you might not you might feel worse were you surprised at how many people were working through the night? Yes, how many? And I suppose I, I thought about the ethics of that. 
and I thought about what I usually would think about ethics would be maybe really, really exploited farm workers who are paid next to nothing or um, in terrible conditions, etc., which obviously happens um, everywhere. But yeah, less about whether it is ethical that, that anybody should have to spend their lives working throughout the night. The last sort of 10 days, we've just had wall-to-wall rain, um, which has been quite demoralising when you're wet and then you come in and then it's still raining and you've got to go out again in the wet and you can't avoid it. You just have to go outside. But, you know, it's not too bad. It's not too bad. There's a strange, uh, like, bravado or machismo to, like, doing, you know, doing work that's kind of hard and gruelling. People know the hours are gruelling. I think people also maybe know that most people would balk at the hours they're doing there's a sort of strange sort of pride taken in that one person you spoke to uh luca said you know that he works through the nights and sleeps three to four hours a day and uh people said that you know they worried about whether young people would take up the jobs because they don't like to work too hard i think it's tied up in in the sense of job security for some people because people would say you know people are never going to stop eating so we're always going to need to keep food production going and I guess one thing that made the greengrocers I spoke to uh, aware of their status of kind of sitting outside of perhaps you know normal forms of work even though that you know they work in a shop it's got a shop front it feels quite normal a lot of the time but throughout the pandemic uh, they obviously had to keep working and they felt quite abandoned by their management in that period we were sort of making up as they were going along. When Covid hit it was just literally just buy an entire week's worth of stuff every single day and sell it yeah which just made every day complete chaos because obviously yeah, but, yeah. with this cut off it gets delivered onto the road we have oh, to like sure. still work out how to serve customers safely make them feel comfortable and pull like three brands worth of stock in and then get it all out and then sell it and then just keep going round and round and round you know? i think everyone we spoke to at least at the kind of level of produce and sale, said that the pandemic was obviously a very busy time. And for those workers I spoke to in West Leeds, they, I suppose, felt that they had been denied a lot of this sort of like safety and reassurance and the sense that people around them were taking measures to be careful in the pandemic. And and that really for them was kind of like a last straw. And, you know, they did feel vulnerable. I can't work here. Why is that? This is shit that's still working. It's just pure repetition, it's madness. Yeah, right? yeah. And on top of that, just been working throughout this whole COVID thing, and as you can see, they've not left us particularly like well prepared for it. Right. And some baggy ass gloves and like our own makeshift self have been made to defend ourselves. I think it's also worth saying that a lot of the workers uh, we spoke to, perhaps all of them, um, are employed in sections of the supply chain that have a degree of constancy, 
about them in and of themselves. We didn't get to speak to workers in supermarkets or in sort of like the food sort of packaging, the, the stage of the supply chain immediately before supermarkets. And I think that's a shame because what that would have done is perhaps flipped the gender balance on its head somewhat. We know that the majority of supermarket workers are women. And I guess it was notable that in the areas of the supply chain, we looked at agriculture, um, wholesale, those sort of distribution networks. Uh, it was very, very sort of masculine, masculinized work. We also didn't speak to um, any fruit or vegetable pickers, the majority of whom are migrant workers and many of whom are women. Um, and I think that speaks to the invisibility of that work and as a whole invisibility of the sector was a big theme. And I think the people we didn't speak to reflects the kind of increased invisibility of, of those jobs as well. To a certain extent, COVID has, has also, and, and, and the debates has highlighted that this, this uh, group of, of migrants, the night workers who are in the backstage, remain invisible. So they continue to remain invisible despite their role in a society which wants to be awake 24-7. So I'm basically um, arguing that these, these conditions are so tough and the workers are, are so wrapped up and caught up in physical demands of work that any forms of solidarity is so fragile and it becomes secondary to their experiences of being used up and spent in that kind of work. You don't have any time to collectively organize. You don't have a union who is interested in you. There's no union representation. And you have lots of migrants who have come to the UK and they have no preparatory, if you want, experience in being uh, unionized, in getting involved, being an active in, in that sense. Um, not to mention the basic elements that I also mentioned about language skills, um, which, which is a great impediment. And, and the trap here, it's also um, reflected in this fact. So you can't really demand and, and, and fight for your rights when you can't speak and you can't go to someone who can represent you. And, and you can't improve your language skills because you're mission is to survive the night shift and the next night shift and the shift after. And, and, and so you see the impossibility of getting out of this trap because as, as a migrant, you cannot improve your skills. And, and trust me, there's no exaggeration what I'm, I'm going to say. Well, you're so wasted. The last thing you want to do is to learn a new language. I think we should be honest, like this is actually a very ambitious sector to talk about because it's so kind of diverse in that way. And like, it doesn't get a lot of attention from the left. It, it isn't kind of sexy in like a social sciences way. It sort of intrudes into consciousness only when, you know, you've got like, so for instance, like the Morecambe Bay incident, um, you know, it must be a couple of decades ago now, really, you know, where you have uh, migrant cockle pickers die uh, you know, in 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 uh, a disaster there, and it's erupted a bit again recently over kind of Brexit and uh, vegetables rotting in the fields or like not being able to find kind of seasonal workers. 
Um, and therefore, you know, for the left, it often gets kind of subsumed under, you know, questions of migration and migrants' rights and, and migrant labour. But there's like it's it's obvious to me from listening to this tape that this is a that, you know this is a hugely important political issue uh, and one that that by its nature has kind of domestic industrial power in some ways. Uh, and yet it's kind of like, it's, you know, basically terra incognita for, you know, a lot of the left. Like, you know, it involves the country, um, which is already terrifying <laughs> for a lot of people on the left. It happens at these kind of weird times of the day and night where we don't, you know, where, where you know, kind of a lot of the political left don't really see it. It does sometimes involve migrant labour or it's, you know, distributed weirdly so you can't, you know, organise at a focal point. Uh, and so the, the, it seems to me that there's this kind of vast system uh, of which you know, we're only describing part of, you know, we should say, and I think it's quite reasonable, like there's there's whole other bits of this system that we're not kind of touching on here. You know, one, that, I mean, they've been kind of skulking around our conversation already. One is the, the, those huge supermarket uh, chains which have their own supply chains, but which also warp and distort the market. Uh, in various ways. Then there is the question of kind of the global side of things, how kind of domestic production, international production work. uh, And then even like within the kind of domestic field as well, there's all sorts of other bits to it. And I I, I just think it's it's vast and trying to get my head around it. um, it, There are other aspects of my life where it would occur to me to think about the kind of productive processes here. And like, I'm vaguely aware of them, but like, it doesn't occur to me that there might be kind of actually quite serious political power here. Within uh, technology studies, there's competing um, understandings of like the politics of technology or the politics of techniques, let's say. Think of technology in the broad sense. So the food supply chain is a technology. It's a methodical way of organizing techniques to produce a, an effect. And that one is, is one that more so than obviously newspapers or many other things in the world is, uh, you know, sort of fundamental to human life. I think on the left, we often fall into like a social determination theory of technology, that the technology itself is fundamentally kind of neutral. And if only it was deployed in particular ways with a particular society, if we have a different society, we could do the technology in a different way and that would produce different results. However, what Langdon Winner calls a, a theory of technological politics is he says, well, of course, in one sense, yes, it seems strange to think that, you know, this action leading to this action and this action or, or nuts and bolts within a machine or whatever, the idea that they have a politics to them seems absurd. That counterintuitively, sometimes when you bring a technology into the world, it demands a political or organizational or social response to that thing in the world that then has its own politics to it. it has its own um, authority or it's, things can be demanded by the process itself. So he gives the example of like an atomic bomb. He says, if you bring an atomic bomb into society, it demands a security state because you, you then have the problem of what happens if an atomic bomb is uh, stolen or, or whatever. You have to have an infrastructure around it that demands all of these things, all these auxiliary functions that, that themselves add up to something quite authoritarian. I suppose what I'm thinking with food production is if we start from the position that some degree of like fresh fruit and vegetables is never going to go away, it's always going to be a thing, then you're always going to have an inescapable 
dimension to the food supply chain that is really determined about time and the organization, the logistical functions of getting, you know, food from that vine. It's either going to go to a person ultimately, or it's you know, feed, or it's going to go to a living organism, or it's going to die and perish and go back into the ground. it's just really hard to get your head around where something comes from and all the different people who might be involved in that process and whether they are okay or not and there was something that felt very not okay about people having to never sleep to um, provide what seems like a very unassuming ethical carrot um, at the market yes <laughs> um, <laughs> it, yeah it, it I mean, I, I was very aware of the fact that I didn't feel like I could do it. And I suppose it did feel sad to me that people, that we need this, this the process we've created that is seemingly so intractable to feed ourselves requires, as Luca put it, him to sacrifice his life. On the left, when we do normally think about ethics in food, we think about potentially far away workers or far away ecologies um, but yeah less so people closer to us you've got so many people working through the night and you know working all these sort of terrible hours and things you question how it could be otherwise of course it could be otherwise that people don't have to work six days a week they could work one day one day a week and get paid but we would get paid properly but um it seems unlikely to me that a process like that could ever really be ironed to the point that it doesn't feel oppressive and punishing and whatever and, and of course when work is like that and if it feels like it's necessarily oppressive and punishing and demanding on your body then people will begin to take meaning from that itself that the, there's the combination of the labor process there which because it is enormously demanding in some ways and because that the demand it makes on the body is necessitated by facts which seem very difficult to change it's therefore impossible to imagine that process changing but in order to imagine it changing you that, that to me implies that you have to go further back you have to say okay so at the moment all of our vegetables are produced in big farms so that then necessitates the kind of transport chain, the, this kind of like rapid, you know, logistical, you know, there would be a way of doing this. It's like if everyone had, if everyone worked two days a week and then had the rest of their time growing food on their own plot, then that would be different. Yes. But that would be a very differently organised society and I'm not sure I want to spend that much time gardening, but this more than anything else is not like a, kind of fictitious need it's you know everyone needs to eat and it's hard to imagine and maybe it's just a failure of imagination on my part but it's hard to imagine a, a kind of industrial process which would be actually just and which would not be kind of which wouldn't produce these sort of like incredibly st sort of strange but also like incredibly physically demanding and incredibly you know, in, in, on some level at least, exploitative uh, forms of work. Maybe that's a failure of imagination on my part, but like, I, you know, I'm 
reasonably imaginative guy. And that's before we even get to the fact that industrial agriculture on the surface sustains everyone, but also is degrading the planet. And I don't know a lot about this, but as far as I understand it, the, the environment is being destroyed by industrial agriculture. Um, yeah, and the pandemic is connected to industrial animal agriculture. Um, and then there's antibiotic resistance. And so it's, it's obviously it's not as simple as everyone needs to eat mm. um, because life is also being destroyed by the way we're feeding ourselves. Good evening, Elvis. Thank you, young lady. Thank you. What did you say your name was? Sophie. Sophie. See you. <laughs> Has it been a good day? Not really. Let me get there. See you. 